0: Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we are reading Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 21, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 3, verses 13 to 21. and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of this passage describes the appointment of the Twelve Apostles. It is an event in our Lord's earthly ministry which should always be read with deep interest. What a vast amount of benefit these few men have conferred on the world. The names of a few Jewish fishermen are known and loved by millions all over the globe, while the names of many kings and rich men are lost and forgotten. It is they who do good to souls who are held in everlasting remembrance. Psalm 112, verse 6. Let us notice in these verses how many of the twelve who are here named had been called to be disciples before they were ordained apostles. There are six, at least, out of the number, whose first call to follow Christ is specifically recorded. These six are Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Matthew. In short, there can be little doubt that eleven of our Lord's apostles were converted before they were ordained. It ought to be the same with all ministers of the gospel. They ought to be men who have been first called by the Spirit before they are set apart for the great work of teaching others. The rule should be the same with them as with the apostles, first converted, then ordained. It is impossible to overrate the importance of this to the interests of true religion. Bishops and presbyteries can never be too strict in particular with the inquiries they make about the spiritual character of candidates for orders. An unconverted minister is utterly unfit for his office. How can he speak experimentally of that grace which he has never tasted himself? How can he commend that Savior to his people whom he himself only knows by name? How can he urge on souls the need of that conversion and new birth which he himself has not experienced? "...miserably mistaken are those parents who persuade their sons to become clergymen in order to obtain a good living or follow a respectable profession. What is it but persuading them to say what is not true and to take the Lord's name in vain? None do such injury to the cause of Christianity as unconverted worldly ministers. They are a support to the infidel, a joy to the devil, and an offense to God." Let us notice in the second place the nature of the office to which the apostles were ordained. They were to be with Christ. They were to be sent forth to preach. They were to have power to heal sicknesses. They were to cast out devils. These four points deserve attention. They contain much instruction. Our Lord's twelve apostles, beyond doubt, were a distinct order of men. They had no successors when they died. Strictly and literally speaking... There is no such thing as apostolic succession. No man can really be called a successor to the apostles, unless he can work miracles and teach infallibly, as they did. But still, in saying this, we must not forget that in many things the apostles were intended to be patterns and models for all ministers of the gospel. Bearing this in mind, we may draw most useful lessons from this passage as to the duties of a faithful minister. Like the apostles, the faithful minister ought to keep a close communion with Christ. He should be much with him. His fellowship should be with the Son, 1 John 1.3. He should abide in him. He should be separate from the world and sit daily, like Mary, at Jesus' feet and hear his word. He should study him, copy him, drink into his spirit, and walk in his steps. He should strive to be able to say, when he enters the pulpit, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, 1 John 1, three. Like the apostles, the faithful minister ought to be a preacher. This must ever be his principal work, and receive the greatest part of his thoughts. He must place it above the administration of the sacraments, 1 Corinthians one seventeen. He must exalt it above the reading of forms. An unpreaching minister is of little use to the Church of Christ, He is a lampless lighthouse, a silent trumpeter, a sleeping watchman, a painted fire. Like the apostles, a faithful minister must labor to do good in every way. Though he cannot heal the sick, he must seek to alleviate sorrow and to increase happiness among all with whom he has to do. He must strive to be known as the comforter, the counselor, the peacemaker, the helper, and the friend of all. Men should know him not as one who rules and domineers, but as one who is their servant for Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. Like the apostles, the faithful minister must oppose every work of the devil. Though not called now to cast out evil spirits from the body, he must ever be ready to resist the devil's devices and to denounce his snares for the soul. He must expose the tendency of races. Theaters, balls, gambling, drunkenness, Sabbath profanation, and sensual gratifications. Every age had its own peculiar temptations. Many are the devices of Satan, but whatever be the direction in which the devil is most busy, there ought to be a minister ready to confront and withstand him. How great is the responsibility of ministers! How heavy their work, if they do their duty! How much they need the prayers of all praying people in order to support and strengthen their hands. No wonder that Paul says so often to the churches, pray for us. Let us notice in the last place how our Lord Jesus Christ's zeal was misunderstood. We are told that they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. There is nothing in this fact that needs surprise us. The prophet who came to anoint Jehu was called a mad fellow, 2 Kings 9.11. Festus told Paul that he was mad. Few things show the corruption of human nature more clearly than man's inability to understand zeal and religion. Zeal about money, or science, or war, or commerce, or business is intelligible to the world, but zeal about religion is too often reckoned foolishness, fanaticism, and the sign of a weak mind. If a man injures his health by study or excessive attention to business, no fault is found. He is a diligent man. But if he wears himself out with preaching, or spends his whole time in doing good for souls, this, the cry is raised. He is an enthusiast and overly righteous. The world is not altered. The things of the spirit are always foolishness to the natural man. First Corinthians 2.14 Let it not shake our faith if we have to drink of the same cup as our blessed Lord. Hard as it may be to the flesh and blood to be misunderstood by our relations, we must remember it is no new thing. Let us call to mind our Lord's words. He that loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus knows the bitterness of our trials. Jesus feels for us. Jesus will give us help. Let us bear patiently the unreasonableness of unconverted men, even as our Lord did. Let us pity their blindness and lack of knowledge, and not love them one whit less. Above all, let us pray that God would change their hearts. Who can tell but the very persons who now try to turn us away from Christ may one day become new creatures, see all things differently, and follow Christ themselves. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? In summing up the first two points, beloved brother or sister, do you pray for your pastors? Do you regularly bring them before the throne of grace to increasingly know the grace of our God? Second, are we surprised when the world doesn't understand what we do for the Lord, why we follow him and not the ways of the world? First Peter 4 tells us to not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us to test us as if something strange were happening.